Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is Equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back for the second time as a three this week because there was so much news we could not fit it all into one show without boring you to tears. So welcome to the second ever, and certainly not last, given how news has gone, Equity Leftovers. As always, I have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, how are you? I am hungry, and I'm thinking we can call this equity pasta water. We add it back in to the week of pasta, and it livens it right up. Natasha's making a culinary sauce-based joke there that I don't think the equity crew, which is more microwaves, Hot Pockets, Pop-Tarts, <laughs> and 7-Eleven really get. Speaking of that audience, we have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all right. There's so much news. How can we possibly keep up with it all? But I will tell you, here's what we got to be doing. We got to be playing games. And if you want to play games, you want to play games with young children because they're the ones who are actually having fun in life, not adults who are extraordinarily boring people. And that is why Roblox today announced a massive round. Like, I, this company's supposed to IPO. Now they're like, we're just going to raise more money. So, Alex, tell us what's going on over there in Crazy Land. As it turns out, none of us should have gotten degrees in anything other than making Lego games for children, because it apparently is the thing that makes the most money. <laughs> and to be clear, my friends work there. I'm not even dissing. I'm just impressed more than anything. Here's the news. Roblox, which filed to go public last year, was going to debut, as Danny said, before the end of the year. Then some IPOs went out that were rather exuberantly received. And it said, whoa, 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 hold on. Because Roblox was going to let a lot of shareholders sell some of their shares at the IPO price in the offering. And they didn't want those shares to be mispriced. Fair enough. So what they have done is they have raised a $520 million Series H at a $29.5 billion valuation, effectively replacing what they would have done in the IPO raise, and then they're going to direct list. So everyone will be unburdened and able to sell their shares if they'd like to. They're eschewing the traditional IPO process and betting that the Roblox brand is sufficiently large to drive interest in the company. Now, guys, we have all heard ad nauseum complaints from the venture classes, Danny's old stomping grounds, that banks are mismanaging IPOs, underpricing them, and rewarding their clients essentially with free money. Here's my question. Now Roblox has set a price for itself, $29.5 billion. What do we say if it goes out and is worth like $35 billion the first day? I mean, won't they also have yet again mispriced their IPO? Does this situation, this new solution actually fix anything? I think one of the big challenges they faced, they raised this past round from Andreessen in February 2020. It was valued at $4 billion, and they raised $150 million bucks, so a tiny percentage. And we're seeing the exact same thing this time with the Series H. $520 million at a $29.5 billion valuation is like 1.7% dilution, so it's very tiny. But I think what they wanted to do was to send a very strong signal to the market of, here's where we see the price today. There are investors who are investing at this price. The last price was $4 billion. This price is 30 and I think they wanted some market support for the argument that they should be valued at this price. I don't think they looked at a lot of the other things on the market and were like, wow, it's really hot. That was the storyline. And I just, I'm very skeptical. 
But I think this was a proof point of saying, look, there is actually market depth at these prices, and it sets the tone of the IPO much more strongly than if they had just gone out kind of blindly. One more thing, and I want to get into Harris's take on this, but like we hear a lot of complaints from VCs about bankers mispricing startups. And Dreesen bought a bunch of shares from Roblox earlier in 2020 at a $4 billion valuation. Now it's worth 30. That's seven and a half times as much. Who's underpricing Roblox here? Is it the bankers? Or is it Andreessen Horowitz? I have a suspicion that it's the VCs. I think it's amazing that we never talk about that. We always say, oh, look how well the VCs did. Not look at how dramatically they underpriced the startup, screwing the employees who are doing the work out of equity and a fair representation for their work. Natasha, when you see these numbers, I know you're more of an early stage person, but uh, how does this make you feel? One, that's awesome framing, Alex. So I love that. I thought about Snowflake when I saw Roblox giving that 29 point billion number. When Snowflake was planning to go public at its last raise, it was valued at 12.5 billion. Obviously, it was one of the most successful IPOs of 2020. Its market cap when it went out was 33.27 billion. A huge difference. And I think maybe Roblox is feeling in some ways like Snowflake was severely mispriced. Let's just feel that confident about ourselves. I don't know if that's a fair enough comparison because I'm sure they're very different businesses. But if Roblox is mispriced and is a lot bigger, it will also be one of the most successful IPOs of all time. Yeah, the new price for Roblox is crazy. But Danny, over to you. I think one of the big questions we have to ask is, what's the float of the IPO? You know, when I look at this and I say, God, is it mispriced? Well, at a certain point, if you're only doing 1.6% dilution, like, yeah, of course you want to get it right. You want to nail it perfectly. But the reality is, if you're only floating 1.6%, who cares? The question at the IPO is, are you floating 5% of the shares, 10% of the shares, 30% of the shares? Because that, to me, is a huge difference compared to some of these earlier rounds where the dilution is much smaller. Yeah, for sure. And one thing we've seen, just to circle back to the point of IPOs being quote-unquote mispriced, is a lot of companies have had a very thin flow when they start to trade. And so you've seen asymmetric demand from retail investors compared to very, very limited shares available, which, of course, ratchets up the initial trading price, feeding fodder into the argument that bankers are bad at pricing IPOs. And this is not to defend bankers. The point is this. It's not like everything is as cut and dry as fits into a tweet. That's what I'll say. Also, just to be clear, Andreessen isn't making the most noise about mispriced IPOs. It's actually benchmark. I don't want to conflate everybody in my head as just, quote, the VCs, but it's worth noting that. Bill Gurley, former partner at Benchmark Group. Less active investor now. Yeah, whatever he is. Emeritus. There you go. There's an asterisk. Also, I'm going to do a shameless plug for an awesome EC1 we have on Roblox on the site. If anyone wants to nerd out about its founding story, I think that is worth a read. But let's move to the earlier side of gaming startups and talk about mayhem. Yeah, so talk about EC1s. Niantic is also an EC1 uh, topic for us. And if you missed it over the holiday break, Greg Cooper, a writer who also wrote the EC1 on Niantic, did a deep dive on how Niantic has responded to the pandemic, given that it is a game that is designed to get you out of the house and walking around a city, which obviously is really hard to do when you're in shutdown mode. But the news this week was that Niantic bought what we quoted as a competitive gaming platform, Mayhem, which was a company out of the Y Combinator Winter 2018 batch that raised almost $6 million from Excel, A4 Capital, and NextGen Venture Partners. This is a company that focused on basically evaluating esports talent. So it was designed to be a platform to analyze the videos of players playing esports. So how they're using, I guess, the keyboard, you know, how they're playing inside the game and basically offering, I guess you could call it an automated tutor, an automated coach to say, here's what you need to perform better. Here's where you're making mistakes. Clearly it didn't go all the way. It's being brought into Niantic. But I think it's unclear, like, what's happening here? I mean, I guess it's a little bit of a technology acquisition and an acquihire. But to me, it was also like, why this particular company that's being bought by Niantic? Here's the thing. I'm a big esports dork. And so to me, what Mayhem does, I get where it fits in the market. I'm curious about how it makes money, but I understand it. 
I also like Niantic. I'm not a mobile casual gamer per se, but the overlapping circles between esports and what Niantic builds, in my mind, don't really cross. So does Niantic have a lot of esports friendly titles in the works that are coming out? Because Pokemon Go, cultural phenom to be clear, but not an esport. It's you walking around the park and catching Squirtaloo or whatever, which is neat, but not StarCraft 2 or like Overwatch, these League of Legends, these famous esports titles. I wonder if it's the effect of Discord in being such a monetizable place for communities to live around gaming. I think Mayhem obviously has focused a lot on community. And so if it can give Niantic a savvy way to build community and not have to make Niantic build it all from scratch, that would be smart. The part that I was surprised by was Winter 2018 Y Combinator, 6 million bucks. And two years later, it's dead. I actually thought it was a really fast turnaround, particularly in a market like esports, which is growing super rapidly. Um, there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of plays you can do there. But obviously, Mayhem is going to get a little bit more organized at a larger company like Niantic. But one of Niantic's largest investors is the Pokemon Company, which is owned by Nintendo. And Nintendo also made a very, very, very rare acquisition uh, this week by Canadian game studio Next Level Games, which is the developer behind Luigi's Mansion 3. Now, have any of us actually played Luigi's Mansion 3? A classic of the genre. What is the genre? <laughs> no. I mean, what is Luigi's no, Mansion 3? I was making a, a, a joke. Platformer. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm going to stop ruining you, your speech. That was and a let sarcasm. That was a sarcasm. So, so oh, I, I, don't know, I didn't catch that. No one. sarcasm for the rest of the year, guys. It's January. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to point out that Luigi's Mansion 3 sold 8 million copies. So F you, bleep you, and everyone can go F themselves. The, the key piece here is, you know, so, so buy a, a developer. And, and Nintendo hasn't actually bought uh, another company and specifically a studio company since 2007 when it bought Monolith Soft, the developers behind Xenoblade Chronicles. And so to me, it was actually really interesting of them bringing in more of their IP, more of the games that are core to its platform. Obviously, Nintendo has done super well on the stock market. Nintendo, I believe, is at like a multi-decade high. Nintendo has actually been around an extremely long period of time. I want to say more than 100 years. But the Switch has done super well in the pandemic. And Nintendo, which owns a couple of different properties, has done particularly well with Animal Crossing. And so my take on this was, you know, let's build out a fuller library. Much in our main show, we were talking about how Amazon and some of the other companies are buying out exclusive titles. I think Nintendo's trying to do the same thing as owning these IP bringing it in-house, having a full stack, and having this unique library of content. So a rare acquisition, first one in 14 years. So Disney owns Pixar, right? That is true. Okay, God. good. My analogy is going to hold up. That is why Pixar is on Disney+. Plus. Thank you, Danny. I'm a, not a good consumer, so I was curious. Uh, Nintendo is the Disney of gaming. It owns its own IP. It plays in its own pond. It does its own thing. And so to me, this is what it feels like, bringing in talent and, and the ability to double down on its own kind of world. And so that's why it makes sense to me. But Natasha, I cut you off by accident, so please. Oh, I was going to make a really lame joke about oh, how, even better. how Nintendo <laughs> needs to catch them all. Hey! <laughs> I think that's a good joke. That's 2021, a delayed reaction as, as we hit, like, what is it, December 38th, 2020. But I will say one other thing. Um, you know, obviously we talk a lot about the video game industry, but this is another proof point that you can build a studio anywhere. You know, obviously this one was based in Canada. Last year, Cyberpunk 2077, Polish developer out there, obviously going through a lot of problems with CG Project, but gaming studios everywhere. There's a lot of M&A. There are literally studios, I think, in every single market. And it's truly one of the most flat and horizontal industries that I know of. So super exciting for Canada. And then finally, in the entertainment gaming space, we have one more company, Cameo, which gave us a bunch of new numbers. Natasha, tell us some more. For anyone who doesn't know Cameo at this point, SMH, but also you can pay for personalized videos from celebrities. They brought in around 100 million in transactions last year, and now they're in a hiring spree. 
Some of the names they've brought on are Rob Post, who was formerly of Quibi, one of our favorite companies here on the podcast. Which just got bought by Roku in, in what I hear is a blockbuster $12 deal. There's also Deb Schwartz, formerly of Bustle, Brian Frank of LinkedIn, and Melanie Steinbeck of McDonald's. It just shows that the growth is turning into a huge expansion of community creators. I have to say I wasn't super bullish on Cameo because I wasn't sure how many times you want to buy the same video or buy videos but it's adding in new personalities. A lot of their personalities are earning at least 100,000 per year, according to Axios. And so it shows the creator economy makes a lot of sense with Betson, as we've seen this week prove time and time again. Creator economy, I want to quibble with because I feel like the creator economy isn't celebrities just monetizing their time in between things, which is what Cameo has always kind of seemed to me, which is cool, to be clear. But creator economy to me is like people building maybe digital products for their own like group of folks versus this. Is it the same thing, Natasha? Am I being overly pedantic? No, I don't think you are. But I do think it like shows that there is a small change happening. Maybe at one point, a TikTok personality wouldn't be considered the same level as a Kardashian, but both of them could be on Cameo. So Cameo, I think, has a little bit of flexibility where famous TikTokers are now social media stars in a serious way to include the broader. And I would still say Charlie D'Amelio is obviously a content creator. She's also a celebrity. And so I think it's a gray area, but agreed in the macro sense, not the scrappy creators that we usually associate with the economy. Danny wants this to be about SaaS. Danny's saying, give me the well, enterprise I, I, news. I, I, I was like, celebrities, content creator, I, whatever. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I, I think the most amazing thing with Cameo is that they incentive aligned people in, in such a unique way. Customers want these famous people to write videos. The people want to actually distribute videos, their personal, build up fan relationships. And what's nuts, because I, I had to like find gifts this fall and I, I was looking for different options and Cameo was one of the options I looked at. The prices are insane. These people, I mean, granted, they're not like literal headliners, but if you go just one rung below, 80 bucks to have like a very notable famous person record a 30 second video for your mother, for your parents, for your aunts and uncles. It's an incredible deal. And I don't need to give my family any more electronic gizmos to ask for IT support for. This falls into my bucket of no one's as rich as you think, except for like seven people and you can't talk to them anyways. So yeah, uh, <laughs> the, the money side of this fits into my thing. But that concludes, the, that's the bottom of the stock pot of equity pasta water, aka equity leftovers, aka the food show, which isn't even about food. We are glad to be back. We are glad that equity is going to be around all year. And just to drop a little hint about the future, not only are we not going anywhere, we're going to be around even more this year. So look forward to some cool stuff coming down the road once we get our producer back from an impending bit of personal leave. But that's all we have time for. So bye. 